And we're back with another episode of Food in the Hood. That's right. Yay. <laughs> we are on the 2021 schedule. That's right. Uh-huh. That's pretty much uh, every three weeks now. We're trying. Yeah, every two, three weeks. Our frequency uh, yeah. has gone down a little bit. Um, oh. But we are so very happy. We have a lot of exciting topics lined up in the pipeline for you guys. Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of more stuff to come. Um, and today we're talking about something that might sound a little bit confusing or overly technical. Um, it was to me when I first heard about it, but I think it's something that's very interesting and we see it as unfolding across the entire food industry in various forms. And that is recombinant proteins. Yeah. So it probably hides in a lot of your ingredient list. Um, yep. People don't say it. It's probably the number 25 ingredient so <laughs> that you don't notice as well. So uh, it's something, uh, how would you like recombine? Recombine it. It's like a right. very scary word. Yes. <laughs> yes. Because when you recombine anything in food, it, it sounds kind of scary to people, right? They're like, yeah. oh, are you taking like the gene from a strawberry and a gene from a fish and mm-hmm. putting it together? What does that mean? So maybe we can talk a little bit about what the word recombinant means and also mm-hmm. how proteins are made. So we can yeah. better explain what recombinant proteins are. Right. So this is like the, the, the 32nd science class back to biology that you really have to uh, think if we just take a pure biochemical perspective. So we're just looking at how to achieve recombine a protein without thinking of the, uh, uh, the the interactions with human body let's put it this way right we're, we're just we're just trying to talk about the pathways of how proteins are made and mm-hmm. how to how to remake or uh, tweak proteins the core of all these is the dna right so That's dna right. is the code of life and code of essentially proteins so this genetic code uh, would go through the dogma of biology is DNA to RNA to proteins and proteins are essentially uh, the expression of the, the DNA codes mm-hmm. right and yeah. all these codes are governed uh, by uh, your whole genome and your genetics right so yeah. let's say uh, you know leaves would produce chlorophylls and produce mm-hmm. uh, these uh, these green color and that's governed in their genes. Yeah. Right? So, so an easy uh-huh. way to think about it, what you say makes perfect sense, right? Genetic, mm. our genome is like a recipe book. DNA is like one specific recipe or a set of instructions. Yep. And then the protein is what is created from DNA, which is the set of instructions for making that protein. Uh-huh. Right. So yep. an easy way to think about it is produ- proteins and how to produce them is encoded in our DNA. So when we say recombinant proteins, in some way they're made by recombinant DNA, right? Yep. And then what that means is that, you know, when we have um, DNA that is, um, maybe we should give an example. Maybe uh, we let's talk put it about- this way, right? So, so you can have all these recipes mm-hmm. um, of different proteins. Right, and, and a, a, it's essentially a, a very difficult um, biological problem to match all these yeah. proteins to their DNAs. 
um, to figure out, okay, this gene does this, that. so right. that it creates this protein. Right. So the heart pathway, to understand pathway. Yeah. So so you kind of have to work reversely, right? So you first find out, okay, this um, leaves produce green stuff. Let's first figure out what is that green stuff. Uh, it turns out to be chlorophyll. Chlorophyll mm -hmm. is made of a certain protein. Okay. Let's figure out what is that chlorophyll producing protein, um, and and from there you can then map it back to the DNA that's governed to produce the protein, right? So that's that's how biologists, and in a more trendy term, like proteomics, proteomics um, uh, to study of groups of proteins, uh, they would be able to figure out, okay, these are the DNAs that are making these proteins. And then from there, because we know a lot about these DNA codes already, we can start to either alternate the DNAs for so basically making tweaks on recipes, yeah. Or uh, we can take that recipe from one organism mm -hmm. and to insert and transfer to a different host uh, organism. Yeah. And and this is essentially, uh, in a more common way, known as genetically uh, genetic modification, right? So yeah. mm -hmm. you are taking a piece of functional DNA from one species and to insert it into a different organ uh, organism for it to produce something that's essentially foreign to that cookbook. So essentially yeah. taking a Chinese recipe and put it into a American cookbook. Mm -hmm. So yeah. for instance, if I have a recipe for orange chicken, but you know, I find that, you know what, I would really prefer if it was less sweet. Right. I may take mm -hmm. something part of the recipe for another recipe, uh, part part of the instructions for another recipe, incorporate it into my recipe to produce an end product that would be more beneficial for my purpose. Right. right? And that's something that we see. So this recombinant protein type of technology, we actually have seen a lot of it for many, many decades. Right. But mm -hmm. I think it is something that is maybe a little bit um, more. So forefront it, I mean, recently it's, it's scary right so so like it's it's essentially gmo and like that's the thing that we have been amanda and i have been hesitate to talk about since the beginning of this podcast <laughs> gmo it's been like that's more than two years we never really touched on gmo that's and right. i think uh recombinant protein is an it, it's a more it's a uh it's the result of why we're doing gmo DNA. Right. Mm -hmm. So so we're, we're doing this. Uh, we're doing a lot of the genetic modifying work to produce and make these recombinant proteins. And we're doing this. Uh, we're seeing more and more applications and real products now on the market that are um, uh, recombinant proteins. And these are making real impact in our world, uh, at least a popularizing impact. Right. We can't really tell. Yeah from a health standpoint or from an ethical standpoint, how that's going. But just by looking at the market snapshot, we're seeing more and more of those. Right. Uh, One such example is um, the, the, the case of the perfect day milk. We actually um, talk about perfect day uh, in our episode talking about the uh, upcoming food uh, startup companies. 
Yeah, and I think uh, that they have gained more momentum as well since we talked about them. Yes, uh, let's see it on sure. a couple of Reddit threads, which uh-huh. is a <laughs> great source of scientific information. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but knows I, I get a lot of my my daily scoop from Reddit. Um, uh-huh. But you know, the thing about Perfect Day is. You know, when we think about the dairy industry, I think there's a lot of concerns over ethical, moral issues or treatment of animals. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, the the thing about Perfect Day is it's trying to make milk, but it's trying to make milk not from cows. Specifically, milk make, proteins. Right, right. Uh-huh. So what they're doing is, you know, when you think about milk, there's different components in it. There's fat. Um, and there's proteins like whey and casein. That's really the backbone of milk that gives its nutritional quality, mm-hmm. um, its characteristic uh, functional properties, etc. So Perfect Day is actually using recombinant proteins to make dairy proteins such as casein and whey in order to form fluid milk. And you mm-hmm. might not have heard of Perfect Day um, all that much because they don't sell directly to consumers right now. They're a B2B type of model right now. So they sell to other businesses, which takes their milk and make it into products like cheese, um, yeah. et cetera. So they're not even necessarily making milk, right? They could just sell uh, milk protein powders. Proteins, like yep. Like, like uh, what you would see from uh, a lot of the nutrition uh, aisles for, uh, say, uh, a... Uh, whey protein powder or a casein powder that mm-hmm. that you could buy it's a formulated product into a powder and you can make drinks out of it or smoothies yeah. it is also way more economical to transport if you think about milk it's yeah. what mostly water yeah, right it's 87 89 percent water right so you're transporting uh, huge amounts of just water <laughs> right but it would be so much cheaper and more efficient to ship these proteins that you can re- you know combine with water to make fluid milk and then use that to make other products absolutely and so they th- this is a i mean they're an ingredient company but they're also a very uh, it's a technology company right so they're based in i think berkeley in california they have a lot of uh, biotechnologies that goes into how they make these what they call flora, I think is a very good word to choose. So floras mm-hmm. are uh, essentially microorganisms or, or community of microorganisms uh, such as bacteria, yeast, uh, to make uh, and, and they um, essentially genetically modify these uh, bacteria and yeast. Uh, we don't know exactly what, what they use, but they essentially would go through a fermentation process uh, for the bacteria and the microbes to grow, and mm-hmm. they produce these proteins as those genes has been inserted to the part of the uh, metabolism of the uh, microbes so that yeah. they grow rapidly. And while the microbes grow, they produce a lot of these uh, dairy proteins. And then they can harvest these dairy protein from a simple separation of proteins mm-hmm. from the microbes. So uh, it's a much efficient way of, of making proteins. And they have, uh, it's essentially cowless milk. And that's real milk protein, right? So if yeah. we're talking, because Amanda and I have talked about a lot about this substitution versus, uh, versus extension uh, differences when we're talking about plant-based meat analogs. 
um, and like your 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 burger patties, uh, veggie burger patties. Right. Um, so that, those are made from ingredients that are not, you know, animal that 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 don't resemble what we know as patties. They're using other ingredients to mimic. Yeah. Um, you and, know, whereas and, in the case of Perfect Day, they're actually trying to make the exact same. Um, proteins and molecules you'll find in yeah. milk. So at a Just molecular level. Just using a non-cow source, right? Uh-huh. So, so it, that's it, that the it, difference. Right. It begets the question, do we call it milk if it's the exact same constitution of milk, right. even if it doesn't come from a cow, mm-hmm. right? If you, if you put a day of, I mean, if you put a glass of perfect day milk next to a glass of milk produced from a cow, if they're essentially the same thing at the molecular level, do we label it as milk or does that label have to be from, you know, a dairy um, right. bovine source? Well, because the thing be is actually, milk, right? actually the, the legal definition of milk requires a cow. Right. Like if you look into the, the code of regulations for milk, milk is such a um, traditional protected word historical yeah entity exactly that. it's a secretion from it's like a secretion from a mammalian cow and you know there's a lot of right. regulations surrounding it because it, it is an issue in the past where people will water down milk right? yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah, try yeah. to sell it so it, it, there's a reason these regulations exist mm-hmm. you know that fda creates these regulations but it will be interesting to see you know when when perfect day milk or these type of um I guess food products that are compositionally the same but produced mm-hmm. by different sources become mainstream. Right. What does that mean for labeling and for for the market and for consumers? Right, and maybe we can give another. Well, we could have a couple of more examples. For example, a lot of the sugar that you would eat in North America is produced by a genetically modified sugar cane or, or sugar beets. Sorry, uh, beets are. GM products, right? Mm-hmm. But then um, you are not buying the sugar beets directly from the produce section in the grocery store. That's right. But the actual beet juice is extracted for, uh, for, for sugar, for table sugar, crystallized and sold as, um, you know, crystal sugars uh, mm-hmm. from your local, uh, you know, to your local stores. Um, but they're essentially, chemically speaking, just sugar. And the That's best right. line that I've heard from these, uh, recomb- uh, it's, a, it's an ingredient from a recombined sources. It's not necessarily a protein source. It's sugar. It's a carbohydrate mm-hmm. source. Uh, but the argument or the, uh, uh, the people that would say about these products uh, are, is that it's not a necessarily a GM source because sugar doesn't contain any DNAs. Right. Uh, it's, it, it sounds a little bit bogus to think, to, to hear that, right? So like, sure, it's not, it doesn't contain DNA, but it's from a genetically modified source. And that's absolutely right from a, um, from like a ecology perspective. Right, because uh-huh. in the example of, let's say GMO soybeans, um, that soybean has protein in it, right? Yep. Or even in the case of the perfect day milk, where we talk about casein and whey mm-hmm. being produced by, be it yeast or any other microorganisms that have a particular vector inserted in them, um, essentially you're producing a protein product, 
right? So there's some Absolutely. fingerprints of the DNA that makes that protein in it. But I guess mm -hmm. with sugar beets, it is, you know, with sugar, it is a carbohydrate source and there's mm -hmm. no protein in it. So it gets a little bit tricky. And actually, you know, when you were talking about that, it also kind of reminds me that, you know, when we think about GMO food sources and recombinant proteins or anything like that, there are a few categories of, um, I guess, GMO foods or GMO proteins when we think about it. Because um, in the case of GMO soybeans, right, mm -hmm. the product is um, genetically modified. But in the case of genetically modifying a processing aid, like a food enzyme, yeah. and then making, yeah. you know, making food uh, or fermenting food or altering food using that genetically modified enzyme, but the enzyme doesn't end up in the final food product. It's just used as a processing aid. What yeah. does that mean? Does it still count as a GMO food? Or, you know, there's a lot of different ways mm -hmm. that yeah, know, people can wrap their minds around it. Because when people, like when the everyday person think of a GMO thing or a picture of a gmo object they were thinking like a chicken on the duck body or something a chicken head mm -hmm. on the duck body those type of very sci-fi org organisms that were produced by genetically or frankenstein essentially yeah right but it's uh, uh in in at the food level or at what we are right now most of these actual biological organisms are not sold directly as a food source to people they That's are mostly right. used as a ingredient source so that companies uh, can extract and purify proteins um, in the case of soybean it will be oil um, mostly speaking and, and protein and and or from sugar beets that would be uh, the sugar table sugar mm -hmm. from these gm organisms so that they can um, extract these type of commonly used ingredient as a um, more efficient way of producing, or sometimes you, you can argue it's a more environmentally friendly way to make right. these products. Yeah. And that's really uh, the current development of recombinant uh, ingredient in our case right so so it's not necessarily selling that sugar beet directly to you or soybean directly to you uh nor would uh perfect day would sell those uh th those uh, bacteria or or microbes mm -hmm. to you right that has no use uh th there has no consumer level value that's uh, right but it only has it only has to go through severe food processing to get to an ingredient source and that ingredient finally end up in some kind of CPG product. So it is something that is used in the process of creating what you eat, but it's not necessarily what ends up on your plate directly, right? And I think that's that's a another good example of that is the Impossible Burger from Impossible Foods, right? Mm -hmm. when, well, for that one, it does kind of... Uh, well, let, let, let's take a look at that one, right? So mm -hmm. for Impossible Burger, what you might know about it is if you cook it, it will bleed like a real burger, it has so the, it, yeah, it has the quote-unquote blood. It has quote-unquote blood, but it's not actually blood. So what, what makes that red color comes out from the patty as you cook it um, is because of a molecule called heme. 
So heme is typically found in blood and it, it, it has a purpose in our blood. It carries oxygen. But the thing about heme is there's another form of it that can be found in soybeans. Mm-hmm. Specifically, it can be found in the root nodules of soybeans. So if you look at the root of a soybean, right, you see those long dangly roots. But you also see these little like round kind of looks like a little M&M um, like, type like, of nodules yeah. on, on the root. So those roots actually have something called soy legume hemoglobin. So, mm-hmm. you know, that is in um, that that is something that gives that characteristic red color. But we don't want to kill a lot of soybeans and get their root nodules just to make all of these patties. So what they do is essentially they um, will genetically engineer that protein by taking the section of soybean DNA that produces that heme, put mm-hmm. that DNA piece into an yeast, right? Put that into the yeast DNA and then ferment that yeast the same way you would you know, ferment beer or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So through that process, you know, that genetically modified yeast will produce more and more of that heme. And then mm-hmm. that heme is used as an ingredient in the Impossible Burger to give it that characteristic, you know, bleeding type of look when you cook it on the stovetop. Right. right? And so it this also is an contributes um, to the meaty. Uh, I just want to add the mm-hmm. meaty taste. Right. Would also come from the heme. Yeah. So yeah. that's a classic example of the what's genetically modified is the yeast. Mm-hmm. Right. But the product that we get from it is the heme. So how, what, where's the line that we draw between um, wh- whether something is considered GM or not, you know? Right. It's a little bit of a gray line. Totally. And, and that is something I think our listeners can go hunt for, right? So uh, a, a lot of places that sell uh, Impossible Burgers and you can get Impossible Burgers um, and uh, look at the back of their ingredient label and you will find this legume hemoglobin um, as a uh, part of the ingredient list and you know to be a hundred percent transparent and truthful it is a it it comes from a gm source yep and that's something uh, uh, i think impossible spend a lot of effort to make and they take Mm -hmm. great pride of to figure out this great way of from a biotechnological point of view a very stable pathway that would be able to produce this um, heme uh, ingredient for their product, yeah. right? And and for consumers, uh, you probably if you're very you're prosumer that looks for labels, you might recognize that on the um, the package of a Beyond Burger patty, you would not find things like non-GM label or uh, non-GMO oh, verified. You're talking about impossible, not beyond. Oh, sorry. Did I miss yeah. the month? <laughs> sorry. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, for impossible, you don't you don't see these labels. Um, yeah. And that's part of the reason because yeah, you would run into these type of controversies. Right, right. Well, for, for two reasons, right? Impossible Foods uses heme, which is a byproduct of uh, GMO organisms. And also, mm-hmm. it uses soybeans, and a lot of the soybeans on the North American market are GM soybeans. Right, right, um, right. Whereas with Beyond Meat, which you know you brought up a little bit earlier, with Beyond Meat, they are non-GMO verified, 
precisely because they use pea protein isolate as their protein source and not soy. And you know, peas, I don't think there is, uh, I could be wrong, but I believe most, um, if not all, pea protein isolate sources on the market are non GMO mm-hmm. uh, for that reason. So, you know, they ha- these two companies have kind of taken two separate approaches to um, also the way they market their product and the type of consumers they market to as well. Right. Um, based on the technologies they use to make their burger. So now that I'm thinking of Impossible's approach, it probably makes more sense for them to go for the food service route. Right. right. That's that's where no they started to, to penetrate. Read. Right. Because didn't they start with the Impossible Whopper and yes, Burger yes, King? Yes, yes, yes. And I think Beyond has uh, also some food service component uh, yeah yeah, yeah. Well. i think it's at dunkin donuts they have those breakfast sandwiches or- right 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 and i mean food service is definitely a very big market for yeah uh, all alternative meat products right but right specifically i think um for the case of impossible um they they had the early card going into the food yeah, service for sure uh-huh. that's a smart move right just yes 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 it. Yes. Uh, uh, I wonder if that's also why Perfect Day started off with B2B. Yeah, because B2B the acceptability really... is a little bit easier when no one mm-hmm. is there to read the label. Right, right, right. And, and it's not <laughs> like for, for the I know our listener is a mix of, uh, you, you know, food scientists and non-food scientists. Uh, and the, pers- the perception of um, genetically modified foods or, or ingredient in our case, now we're talking about. As food people, I think counterintuitively, oftentimes we're mistaken as dietitians and That's right. or nutritionists. Or nutritionists. Yeah. However, um, the goal of food industry overall, or the technical problem that we're solving every day, is more towards to a quote unquote effective, sustainable supply chain of the food future, as opposed to uh, the focus itself is not necessarily into the human nutrition interactions between ingredients and the human body, right? So it is very difficult for us to comment on the long-term consumption effects, health effects from these consuming these ingredients. Uh, and I think overall in the community of science, it's a big topic that there are many people are thriving to find out the real effect. And at the same time, uh, because it's unclear, it makes it a fair game for both sides to either use it or uh, keep it away from it. Right. That's why when we're talking about things that made to the ingredient list because after all gm has already because of communication problems because of uh overall pr effects it has carried this huge negative type of yeah implications and i think a lot of consumers minds right and and you know i think that there has been a lot of studies done on it mm-hmm. um and I do think that, you know, it's hard to also put a blanket statement on all GMO foods versus, mm-hmm. 
you know it, 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 I, I think it's something that is hard to put a blanket statement on i mm-hmm. wouldn't um I, I think there's a lot of intricacies related to it that it's hard for people to say gmos are 100% safe and 100% the same as everything else we eat, right? It's hard to say yeah. that as well. But it, at the same time, I do think the negative implications that most consumers bear is also a little bit blown out of proportion because of negative press. Yeah, and and I feel like overall, it's the, it, it's the silent majority that would determine the, the future, right? So So a lot of people are you know their consumers are less care about their food ingredients they want food on the table uh, they don't look at the uh, legume hemoglobin as a negative ingredient on their list so that's where impossible is creating the path forward for mm-hmm. um, these ingredients uh, for yeah. the future yeah. of foods right and, and i think overall that maybe a way forward um and that's why as food professionals we're not necessarily rooting out ruling out of all these uh, gm-based ingredients right and for us we're talking about how can we best communicate it to the consumers yeah um and i think the general scientific consensus right if we're not looking at consumer sentiment focusing on pure science, looking at independent research studies done over the past couple of decades, comparing Mm -hmm. to GM foods versus their traditional counterparts. I think the overarching evidence is that, you know, GMO foods are safe for consumers. Now saying that something is safe is different from something saying something is equivalent or healthy or nutritionally equivalent. Now that those statements are a little bit hard to prove and it could be different from um from from product to product right but what we do know is that gmo foods are safe the ones Mm -hmm. that are on the market what we cannot say with certainty is that uh let's say genetically modified i don't know berry is you know equivalent to its traditional counterpart in terms of anthocyanin content Mm -hmm. in terms of nutrient like that that type of statement is very hard to make without um just because it it is so different from product to product from food to food yes so i think that there is a distinction between say saying something is safe versus Mm -hmm. saying something is equivalent to its traditional counterpart Um, absolutely and it because of this nature that you just mentioned we can't rule gm products out just yet Right, and and that's where these companies are started experimenting with them, and I think in the end, like here we can talk a little bit about the, like if you were thinking of a quadrant with two axes, you have an ingredient utility axis on on the X, and you have a vertical axis Y for the environmental damage or environmental cost, right? So the reason why recombinant proteins are, uh kind of the uh the 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 first pick for these uh recombinant ingredient work is because for example milk proteins are greatly utilized in multiple food categories you find Mm -hmm. them in protein bars in protein shakes in um you you know different type of um, bakery goods they all contain proteins from milk 
so yeah. that the potential of applying these ingredients in multiple food processing facilities is much greater than, you know, doing some recombinant work for a less common like ingredient. Like star fruit or durian. Yeah, yeah like durians. <laughs> Which like I love, that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, those are probably less, less in, lost in right, the line, right? right? We so don't then... see that global <laughs> application. It's used right. in almost every single country. It holds a lot of significance in a lot of food cultures, right? Right, right, right. Dairy protein. <laughs> then, then you also have another axis for uh, this harm to ing- uh, environment or the environmental cost, right? So whey protein or, uh, or milk protein in general has a high impact on the environment, therefore a high cost. Right, on like the cows and those yeah. methane farts, you know. Yes, yeah. So, so at least uh, uh, for, for uh, there's a mixed research results, but um, you can't disagree that there is a significant environment impact yeah. of uh, raising dairy cows, right? So... So that makes Perfect Day a company that is it rationalized the existence of Perfect Day because they can have produce these ingredients from a recombinant source that first has a market because it's highly utilized, second has an ethical high ground or moral high ground because it reduces environmental impacts. Right, so that's where you want to start first, right? That's the lowest hanging fruit, Exactly, yeah. So that's also why we see, you know, with big crops like soy or corn, those are the ones that tend to be GMO first mm-hmm. um, compared to Absolutely. some of the other smaller crops that maybe are not as economically important. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's very, I think the bottom line is this is still very, very new. Right. There are probably like a handful of real ingredients that from a GM source has been made from a GM organism that has now into our uh, ingredient list, like in a real food setting. Even perfect day is still in the early stage. But as we're moving forward, we might have uh, we we, we will probably see more of these um, applications. definitely exciting to see what is possible if you told me i mean i mean if you tell someone from 100 years ago we can create milk mm-hmm. without cows that is sort of a you know people are going to think it are, is that witchcraft what are you practicing yeah. right? what are you smoking like yeah. <laughs> absolutely so, I do think that there's a lot of potential, especially when we talk about the fact that we are a burgeoning population with less and less arable land to grow food mm-hmm. on. Um, whether Whatever ways we can produce food more efficiently and more ethically and more sustainably, mm-hmm. I do think that, you know, um, there's a lot of potential for us with the use of recombinant proteins because it is a very targeted approach, right? When you think about yes. a lot of foods we eat, we, we might not eat the whole food. We might uh-huh. eat part of it because that's where humans find value in that. So why spend so much resources growing the entire food if we're mm-hmm. going to use only a small portion of it versus doing a very targeted approach where we're essentially using yeast or microbes to produce that, signif- uh, that, that particular protein or mm-hmm. functional ingredient that we care about. Yes. And that's pretty much how... Um, I think the, 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 the near future of this industry 
Um, there are believers in this field. Uh, as food scientists, from more of the uh, product perspective, right? Less from the ingredient perspective, more in the product spe- uh, perspective. There are more concerns of how consumers are going to perceive it. Is it the same? Can we use it with the same functionalities in food? There are more things to consider, but it doesn't stop uh, people trying um, these type of new approaches of making food. And there are bottom line is there are advantages um, from an environmental perspective, from a technological perspective, and from essentially a sustainable perspective. Um, but the disadvantage is pretty obvious too, right? We've been talking so yeah, long for this. Definitely. Yeah, and the from consumer perceptions and the negative connotation that recombine it or. Um, genetic modified organism have it's been for so long yeah yeah so so there you have it recombinant proteins yeah it is a big word but hopefully you know we broke it down a little bit more where it's easier to to digest um i think Mm -hmm. whenever i see the word recombinant you know it's it it can mean a lot of different things right yeah um yeah that's that's what we have right now It'll be exciting to see what unfolds in the next couple of years uh-huh. and maybe we'll come out with another episode in five years and <laughs> things will be different maybe perfect day will be a b2c <laughs> oh yeah maybe we can buy perfect day milk in the grocery aisles now right so cool a lot more exciting things to come yep mm-hmm. and uh, well, that's a wrap for this episode. So thanks for listening. Uh, you can find us on various podcast platforms. You can contact us at fihpodcast at gmail.com and give us a five star if you enjoyed our episode. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Bye-bye.